You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Thank you. We are going to be in Luke chapter 10, the passage that we just read together. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a Facebook or Twitter or Instagram flame out with someone where you were kind of in a heated way arguing about something. Have any of you ever done that or are you more righteous than I am at times, right? If you have ever been in a discussion with someone on social media and you used a term inappropriately, you are going to get a meme thrown at you. It will be Anigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. And you will see those words. You keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. Well, today's passage is kind of like that. Whenever you bring up the Good Samaritan, everybody thinks they get the story. They think they get what the passage is really driving at. But as we'll see in a moment, we may need to take a closer look. If you talk to political liberals, they'll tell you this passage is about more government spending, greater federal programs for the poor, and so on. If you talk to political conservatives, they'll tell you this is more about private charity and helping those in need through economic reforms. If you talk to Christians, they'll tell you the Good Samaritan parable is primarily about learning to use Christian charity to those in our immediate neighborhoods, for example. But I think there's something far, far more scary going on in this parable than most of us have ever realized. Here's the context. A lawyer comes to Jesus, and by a lawyer, we mean somebody schooled in the Mosaic law, who knows the law of Moses frontwards and backwards, probably has it memorized. He is an expert in the law. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. And he comes to Jesus and delivers a rather snarky question. Well, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, actually, that's precisely the right question. Can there be a more important question in all of life than what do I got to do to be in heaven with Jesus? He asked the right question. And Jesus gives a very surprising response. Now, what would you do if a neighbor came to you and said, you know, I've seen you going to church every weekend. I know I see you load the kids in the minivan. You got your Bibles and you're kind of dressed up, sort of, and I know where you're going. What do I need to do to be saved like you are? What would we do immediately? Well, we'd give him the gospel. Well, if you repent of your sins, you believe on Jesus alone for salvation, you too can be in heaven with him. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, if you look at the text, Jesus gives a stunning response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what Jesus says. Well, what does the law say? What? Why would Jesus say that? We're going to find out in just a minute. But the guy knows exactly what Jesus is getting at, and he gives the right answer again. He says, well, the law says, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind or will, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then if Jesus hadn't already stunned everybody, he really does it now with this reply. He says, well, do this, and you will live. 
Those are some of the most disturbing words in all of Scripture. Jesus answered the guy's answer by saying, yeah, if you live up to all of that, yeah, you'll live. But here's the question. Who does? Who does? And I want to speak this morning on this theme. Abortion, a failure to love my unborn neighbor. And the reason why I think this is important is because all of us tend to think we are okay when it comes to loving our neighbor, whether it's our unborn neighbor or our physical neighbor. You know, we think to ourselves, look, uh, I don't throw rocks at my neighbor's car when he comes home from work. I don't go over there and yell at his wife. If, the kids, if his kids play on my front lawn, I don't, I don't throw a fit. I'm a pretty decent live and let live kind of person. But the love that Jesus is going to talk about here, the love that the law of God demands is a whole nother ballgame. And the lawyer at that point should have fallen on his knees and said, Lord, I can't live up to that. I'm not capable of that. Have mercy on me. But that's not what he does. The text says he seeking to justify himself, says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And here's where it gets real. Jesus responds to that snarky question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus essentially says, okay, you want to know, teacher of the law, what it means to love your neighbor? I'm going to tell you. And Jesus totally flips the narrative on him. He flips the narrative from who is my neighbor to are you a good neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. What is it that Jesus tells us in verses 33 to 37 in that story of the Good Samaritan? Jesus says this, you want to know what it means to love your neighbor? Here's what it means. Flawless self-sacrifice. Now, let me define what that means. All of us are capable of sacrificing, but in our sinful condition, even our best actions are mixed with impure motives. We can't even get repentance right. But according to this passage, we have to have flawless self-sacrifice. It gets worse. Flawless love for someone who's a complete stranger who, by the way, hates you. Jews hate Samaritans. So in helping this guy, the Samaritan is actually helping someone who hates him and his people. Jesus goes on. Flawless, unending financial support for a person you just met. Now imagine you come across a traffic accident and you stop to help and you learn that this person has no medical insurance no means to get the treatment they need. So you go ahead and max out your visa card to get them the emergency services they need, and then you find out they're gonna need hospitalization after that, and so you pull out your AMX card and you max that out, and you keep going as long as he needs it. That's what's in view here. Flawless giving of your time. 
The man not only stops to recognize the beating victim, he gets off his own animal, gets down in the dirt with the guy, bandages up his wounds, puts him on his own animal, and takes him to the inn. In other words, his whole day gets redirected. And then, here comes the clincher. The obligation we're under is not to do that just once, but every day and every minute of our existence. So here's my question. Who of us can live up to that? I don't even love my spouse that way. I don't love my kids that way. I can't even get out of church on Sunday without failing this test. Because you know what's going to happen? I'm going to see Jim. Almost every Sunday I see Jim at church. Jim is going to make a beeline for me when I'm trying to get out of church so I can get to Texas Roadhouse and have lunch. Jim is going to talk to me for 20 minutes about things I don't care about in the least. And he's going to keep going and going and going. There's no stopping him once he starts. By the way, his name isn't Jim, in case you're wondering. I would hate, you know, somebody to think that I'm actually pinpointing the guy. But you know people like this, right? And Jesus says to really love your neighbor, flawless perfection. And none of us live up to that. Now, here's the problem. The scripture says that without righteousness, no one's entering the kingdom of God. It then says there is none righteous. We have a real conundrum. We have to have righteousness to get into the kingdom of God, but scripture says there's none who are. What do we do with that? How can we possibly move forward now, I bring this up lest any of us here today think the purpose of talking about abortion is to beat up on those who haven't loved their unborn neighbor. Well, we have. We have been good. We haven't been a bad neighbor. Only those people who've participated in abortion have failed to love their unborn neighbor. You know what this passage says? None of us have loved our unborn neighbor correctly. Mother Teresa failed the test. The best crisis pregnancy center director that you know has failed the test. I have failed the test as a full-time pro-life apologist because the scripture says I've got to do it perfectly. And if we are seeking to justify ourselves according to the law, every one of us in this room is doomed, just like this lawyer was. But here's the amazing thing. The righteousness that God demands is the righteousness he provides in the person of Jesus. If you've had an experience with abortion today, you want to hear the two most glorious words in all of Scripture? Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, But now, but now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. It's a righteousness that we sang about, that we celebrate every time we gather. This righteousness is not intrinsic to us. It's actually foreign to us. The Protestant reformers referred to it as an alien righteousness. By that, they didn't mean the movie Alien with space monsters. They meant that the righteousness we need, you and I cannot manufacture. It's not in us. 
because we're actually dead spiritually. But God is in the business of making dead people alive. And what God does is our sin, which is an affront to him, whether it's abortion or lying or or cheating or being unkind or gossiping, pick your sin. God the Father, instead of pouring out his wrath on us, rebel lawbreakers, sends Jesus to bear in full his wrath and judgment against sin. Because if God is holy, he has to punish sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug. And he does punish it, men and women, not by pouring it out on you and me who deserve it, but on his sinless substitute who stands in our place condemned and bears in full the judgment we deserve. And the lawyer, of course, who should have known better from reading the Old Testament scriptures that a Messiah would come and do that, he should have read Isaiah 53, reading that the the Messiah would be crushed for our iniquities and that the wrath of God would be poured out on him. He's blind to all that because all he sees is his own self-righteousness. And if our posture is to say, well, we're going to talk about abortion so we can beat up on people who've had one, we have missed the point of this parable because it's saying that all of us have failed to love our unborn neighbor. All of us failed the test. And our only hope is found in the glorious truth that Jesus stood in our place condemned and bore the judgment every one of us here deserves. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. Listen to me. Precious saint, if you've had an experience with abortion, whether you're a man who encouraged a woman to go that way or a woman who chose that, if your trust is in Jesus as your Savior, God the Father is no longer your judge. You are no longer judged by the law of Moses. Instead, you are declared righteous in virtue of what Jesus did for you, standing in your place taking the wrath of God and living the perfect life you have failed to live. God now judges you by Jesus, not yourself. And you know what else? You're not an outcast to God. If your faith is in Jesus, God the Father is not only no longer your judge, he is now your dad and he adopts you into his family as a dearly loved child. That's the gospel of Jesus. But still, but still, We're dealing with a parable here, a story here, where we are to learn to love our neighbor. None of us will do it perfectly, but there are principles here we need to absorb and apply in our lives. And I want to take a few moments to tell you what they are. And they all involve one word, repent. The lawyer refused to repent. He just tried to justify himself. We have a posture of repentance. And the first thing we need to repent of is our tendency to self-justify, to justify ourselves. In fact, if you look at verse 29, look what it says there. But he, meaning the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Jeremiah 17:9 says, the human heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? That's our default condition outside of Christ. We don't know our own hearts. I don't know my own heart because the Bible says we're blinded by our sin. By the way, that's why you need a church fellowship because you can't see your own heart. You're blind to things. That's why you need brothers and sisters around you. And the sad thing about our culture today 
is so many people get upset if you challenge them on anything. The whole cancel culture around us is built on the premise, don't you dare judge me. Don't you dare even make me feel bad. And yet, the message of Scripture is that our hearts are not okay. We need others around us who speak truth and who speak life into us. The lawyer, of course, wanted no part of that. We live in a self-justifying culture, especially on the issue of abortion. 20 years ago, here was the way we were told to think about abortion by the prevailing culture. Abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Of course, the question is, safe for whom? But that's no longer the, the, the phrase we hear. You know what we hear now? Don't apologize for abortion. Shout it. In fact, there's a movement out there called Shout Your Abortion, where women who've had abortions are supposed to wear T-shirts that proudly proclaim that they've had abortions, and nobody should apologize for it. Katha Pollitt, in her best-selling book, Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights, says that vacuuming out your uterus is no different morally than vacuuming out your house. So quit apologizing for abortion. Don't even attempt to make excuses for it. You don't have to. You're justified having one. Now, sometimes this can settle, subtly sneak into even our own thinking as Christians. We look at an issue like abortion, and we say, you know what? I really don't want to deal with that issue. I don't want it to be a distraction from the main thing, the gospel. The greatest single evangelist in history, bar none, is Reverend Billy Graham. There are millions of people in the kingdom of God today because of how that man was used by God. And there's millions of people in heaven today because they heard the gospel during their lifetimes, thanks to Billy Graham. And yet Billy Graham was blind on the issue of abortion. And he sought to justify his silence by saying the following. In a national TV interview with Larry King, Reverend Billy Graham said, and I'll paraphrase it, I don't talk about abortion because I don't want to distract people from the main thing. Here it is, an unbeliever, Larry King, asking Billy Graham, the leader of the evangelical movement, why he's been silent on abortion. And Billy Graham justifies himself by saying, I don't want to distract people. And Mr. Graham ignored the fact that right here in this story, in a story about salvation, Jesus is talking about loving our neighbor. Billy Graham was blind to that. We're all capable of being blind to that. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, abortionist Willie Parker, who describes himself as an evangelical Christian, that's right, he kills babies for a living, describes himself as an evangelical Christian, and he's written a book called My Life's Work, where he talks about how he celebrates being an abortionist. And you know how he describes himself in that book? He describes himself as a good Samaritan to women who need abortions. Men and women, Willie Parker is not a good Samaritan. Willie Parker is a substitute false savior. And if you've had an experience with abortion here today, don't run to Willie Parker as your good Samaritan. 
Run to Jesus as the only one who can save you and forgive you. Jesus calls us sinners. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't justify us with fake talk. He calls us sinners, but then says, I came to save sinners. I came to rescue sinners. You know what we are as sinners? We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. But make no mistake about who we are. We are sinners. We can't justify ourselves. Point number two, we need to repent for not recognizing the unborn as our neighbor. Look what happens in the second part of verse 29. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Is the unborn my neighbor? The answer is, if he's a human being, yes, he is. And when pro-lifers argue for the unborn being a human being, we don't just take it as an article of faith, blind faith. The world looks at us and says, you really have no case. You just have blind faith. But Christian faith is never blind. What Christian faith is, is trust based on evidence. For example, when I flew here yesterday, I had faith the airplane would get me here. It was with a reputable airline, Delta, which stands for don't expect luggage to arrive, but you will. There were two guys in the cockpit with thousands of hours of flying experience. The airline industry as a whole is remarkably safe. I had faith, but it wasn't blind faith. It was trust based on evidence. The world looks at us and says, you have no case for your view. Well, actually, we do. We love our unborn neighbor because we have good arguments for believing he's one of us. We don't do it blindly. The science of embryology, men and women, is really clear, and I'll summarize it for you in a sentence. From the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. I want you to hold your hand up like this, and I want you to give yourself some good pinch on the back of your hand. If your neighbor isn't doing it, grab skin cells off the back of their neck. Get some skin cells. Go ahead, give yourself a good pinch. Congratulations. You just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the Bible in front of you. The news gets even worse. Every one of those cells you just sent hurling individually contain your DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? For the dude in the back going, oh no, you didn't. Let me explain why, and you know why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. There's a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the embryonic human beings we once were. That's the science of embryology. So why don't people get this? Well, one reason is that they say, well, wait a minute. Have you ever seen a picture of an early embryo? And their intuitions do not connect with the humanity of that early embryo. And I, I sort of get it. Because if you've ever seen a picture of an early embryo, say at about the six-day stage, it looks like a tiny clump of cells. You need a microscope to see it. And people look at that and they say, well, that's not a baby. And they're right. But it is a human being at the earliest stage of development. And maybe this illustration will help illustrate why we believe that's a human being. For those of you in the room that are under the age of 45, I need to let you know that there was a time when we did not take pictures with our phones. 
We had these things called cameras. Cameras were rectangular or square. They had a lens. Light would come through after you shot it, would record an image on this stuff called film. Film was expensive. We certainly didn't waste it taking pictures of our food. And the way it would work is you would shoot 36 exposures, and then you would take the film out of the camera carefully, put it in a little canister, drive to the far corner of the neighborhood supermarket where there was a little yellow and white shack called Photomat. You would drop your pictures off at Photomat. You would wait a month and a half for them to come back, half of them overexposed. We suffered for the kingdom back then. The Polaroid camera began to address that mess in the 1960s. The Polaroid camera, as you know, those of you that have modern Polaroid cameras, keep in mind the old ones were really ugly, but they solved a problem. You'd shoot a picture, and you didn't have to wait a month and a half to get it. It would spit the paper out, you'd shake it for two minutes, and the picture would emerge in front of you. I want you to pretend it's 1970. We've traveled back in time. It's 1970, you and I are part of a large Mexican safari going through the jungles of southern Mexico, and you have your Polaroid camera queued up, and you just happened to snap a picture of a black jaguar in midair jumping across the trail in front of us. Nobody films black jaguars in the wild. They're almost never filmed in the wild. Almost all the pictures you've ever seen of a black jaguar is in captivity. You caught one in the wild, airborne, and you cannot wait for this picture to emerge because you know National Geographic will pay you huge bucks for it. And while you're waiting for your picture to emerge, I come up behind you. I rip the camera out of your hands. I yank the paper out of it, and I tear up your picture. Are you angry at me? You're furious. What if I cavalier reply, well, what's the big deal? I didn't see a jaguar in that so-called picture. All I saw was a white paper with a brown smudge on it. You would look at me incredulous and say, are you out of your mind? The jaguar in the picture was already there. We just couldn't see him yet because he was still developing. From the one cell stage, men and women, you were already there. We just couldn't see you because you were still developing. That's the science of embryology. But science cannot tell us how to treat the unborn. There's a lot of people out there who go, okay, I'll grant that the unborn are human, but I won't recognize them as my neighbor because they're not persons yet. To be a person, you have to feel things. You have to have self-awareness. You have to be able to interact with your environment. And no embryo or fetus can do that. So they might be biologically human, but they're not persons. Question, have you ever met a human that wasn't a person? Those of you with teenagers don't answer. Have you? Why should I believe there can be such a thing as a human being that's not a person? If our value as a human being is based on our functional abilities, say physical development, those of you with more development have a greater right to life than those with less. Human equality is out the window. In fact, I'd like you to do something. Right now, just look around the room and stare at some people. Go ahead, just stare. Look around the room. 
Uh, if there's any single guys here and you've been dying to make eye contact with a good-looking young woman, this will be your God-sanctified church moment to do it. Don't laugh. I met my wife that way. 35 years with this ring right here. Okay, ready? Go. One, two, three. Stare at somebody. Go ahead. Stare at them. Okay, question. What makes us equal? Are we all equal physically? No, we're not. We're not at all equal physically. In fact, if I had to play one-on-one -on -one basketball against any of the dudes I'm looking at out here, most of you young guys, I'd get trounced, even though I played high school basketball. Why? Because at age 60, I'm no longer quick enough to get open for shots. I'll kill you in horse, but I can't get open for the shot. If Planned Parenthood is right that we can destroy a human fetus because it's not as developed as you and I, then those of you with more development have a greater right to life than those with less, and our human equality is gone. Are we all equally self-aware? No, we're not. Some of you had coffee before coming here. Not that decaf stuff that Satan invented. I'm talking about the real deal. And you're doing real well right now. Others of you, your cup of coffee was at 6 a.m. this morning. You're this side of a comatose state, right? If self-awareness gives us value, and we can destroy a human fetus because it's not yet self-aware, those of you with more self-awareness have a greater right to life than those of us with less, and human equality is out the window. There's one thing we share equally in this room, men and women, only one, and it doesn't come in degrees like self-awareness, like physical ability, like viability. You know the one thing we share in common? We all have the same human nature. Well, what's a human nature? It's the thing that makes you human and not some other thing. All living things have nature, natures that determine the kind of things they are. Your pet goldfish has a goldfish nature. Your dog has a canine nature. Cats, I have learned, have satanic natures. <laughs> you have a human nature. It determines the kind of thing you are, and as Christians, we know that that human nature bears the image of its maker. We're made in the image of God. Any other foundation for human equality it's out the window because none of us share those other traits equally. When did you get your human nature? The moment you began to exist. That's when you got it. Now, there'll be people who say, well, I get it. You have a human nature, but not that embryo. Here's the question you put to them. How is it possible for two human parents to create offspring that isn't human, but later becomes so? To quote my favorite philosopher, Ricky Ricardo, they have some splaining to do at that point. There are four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the young adult or adult that's here today. Only four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. None of them are good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. There's a difference of size, a difference of level of development, a difference of environment, and a difference of degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED. You'll remember these four differences. Size. Were you smaller as an embryo? There's your S in that acronym. Yes, you were. But since when does body size determine value? If we were to bring the da Dallas Mavericks basketball team in here and put them up on the stage behind me, they'd be a foot taller than almost everybody in this room. Are they more human and valuable simply because they're bigger? Body size doesn't give you your value. What about level of development? Yes, you were less developed as an embryo. So, two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. Two-year-old girls do not yet have a developed reproductive system. Are they less human and valuable than the 21-year-old who does? Students, those of you under the age of 24, I have bad news for you. You are less developed than your parents. You're less developed than your parents physically, and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which might come as a shock to a few of you. But the fact is, you won't reach your intellectual peak till your mid-40s. 
Do your parents have a greater right to life than you simply because they're more developed? What about environment where you're located? Size, level of development, environment. You were in the womb, now you're out. But how does where you are determine what you are? If you drove at least seven miles to come to church today, can I see your hands? 27 miles. Ooh, 37 miles? 47 miles. 907 miles, I win. Now, <clears throat> if a journey of 47 miles didn't change you from one kind of person to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable human being we can kill to a valuable, non or a valuable human being uh, that we can't kill? Let me back up and start that again. How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from a non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to a valuable human being we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, you're not getting there just by changing your address. And finally, degree of dependency. Yeah, you depended on your mother for survival. So, how does dependency on another human being mean that we can intentionally kill you? There are conjoined twins, uh, like those two girls that are now in their early 30s. I think their names are Abby and Brittany. I can't think of their last name, but they're literally, when you look at them, you see one set of legs, and then from the waist up, they branch off into two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. They're connected. You can't separate them without killing them. If your right to life is determined by your ability to live independent of another human being, then neither one of those girls has a right to life and they can both be killed. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, not one of those is a good reason for saying we could kill you then but not now. So yes, the unborn is my neighbor and we need to repent of not recognizing him as such. Thirdly, we need to repent for refusing to see Abortionist Warren Hearn, who wrote the book Abortion Practice, in a very candid address to the Planned Parenthood Physician Network, said the following, we can no longer define as unseeable the work we do, he said. The work we do can no longer be denied what it really is. It is before our eyes the act of destruction we bring upon the fetus. And then he ended his comment by saying this, when we perform abortions, the sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. He's being honest. You know what disturbs me, brothers and sisters? There aren't a lot of churches like yours. Your church was willing to deal with abortion. You know what we get? A lot of churches who don't want to see, and here's their reason for it. We don't want to lay a guilt trip on people who may have had an abortion. We want to spare them that guilt trip. Men and women, when the church of Jesus Christ refuses to see abortion, when like the priest and the Levite, they pass by on the other side of the road and refuse to look and to see, we are not sparing post-abortion men and women guilt. You know what we're sparing them? Healing because unconfessed sin has them out of full fellowship with Jesus. The kindest thing we can do is not to hide our eyes like the priest and the Levite, not to pass by and not look, but to see abortion for what it is and then point people to the only thing that will heal them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I close with this. We need to repent for being afraid of what the world thinks. Look at verses 33 to 34. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, meaning the beating victim. 
And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan knows that if he stops to help a Jew, he's not going to get a standing ovation. He's going to get hatred. And we are in a culture today, men and women, where if you are pro-life, you will take heat for it. And it's going to get worse. It is not popular to state that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. You will be attacked for this. You will take heat for it. And in that moment, we have to decide as believers, do we care more about what our king thinks or do we care more about what our critics on social media think? Do we care more about a social justice mob that wrongly attributes to us awful motives than we do helping women most at need in the moment of their crisis pregnancy? It's going to take strength and fortitude to stand for biblical truth. And it may even start with your family. Suppose your Aunt Betty comes to visit you at Thanksgiving next year, and Aunt Betty shows up, and she is not a Christian. In fact, she thinks you're nuts for being a Christian, and she thinks you're really nuts for being pro-life. And she says to you between bites of turkey, why are you pro-life? Here's what you're going to say to her. And you do it in under a minute. In fact, somebody can time me if you want. We're going to get this done in under a minute. Here's what you're going to say. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology says from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. I did that in under a minute. I did not cite any Bible verses, but did I communicate biblical truth? Yes, I did. And this is your job, men and women. You know how you stand by the, un by the unborn? It's not by having all the answers memorized. A lot of people think they can't be an effective witness for Jesus because they don't know how to handle every objection that might be thrown their way. That's not what you have to worry about. By the way, just so you know, you have never saved anyone and you never will because it's God who saves people. It's his miraculous work that causes the new birth. He uses us to communicate biblical truth, but you're not a superman. You can't save yourself, let alone your neighbor. But you know what you can do? With the Holy Spirit's work alongside you and through you, you can put a pebble in that person's shoe. You ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking? It wears on you and wears on you until you deal with it. When you share biblical truth on the issue of abortion, you're giving someone something to think about. You're putting a pebble in their shoe. Now, I know what some of you were thinking. You heard me go through that one-minute defense for Aunt Betty, and you were thinking, how am I going to remember that? And some of you were taking notes faster than broke people at a Dave Ramsey seminar as I was going through that whole thing. <laughs> and I know your thought process. I know the evil intentions you were casting my way. You were thinking, why didn't he write that down for us so we can remember it? Well, I did. 
Uh, I have a sled card here with that whole one minute defense is right there on it. You can pick one up on the table on the way out, one per family, so there's enough for everybody. And you can take that home with you, pin it on your refrigerator and refer back to it. But men and women, we are called to love our unborn neighbor. And let us be clear, our motivation for loving our unborn neighbor is not to earn God's favor because we're no different than the lawyer in this story. None of us can live up to the demands of God's law. None of us. We love our unborn neighbor not to earn God's favor. We love our unborn neighbor because of Jesus we now have God's favor. That's the difference. That's what we're about. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, none of us here today loves perfectly, sacrifices perfectly, repents perfectly, gives perfectly. We are sinners all our days. None of us can live up to the demands of your law. But you sent Jesus to die in our place as our substitute, to stand as the perfect, obedient Son, absorbing the wrath we deserved, that we could be declared righteous. I pray for any who are here today. I want to pray for two groups of people. For those who have had experience with abortion, and you have been led to believe through your inner condemning voice that you will never be able to atone for what you did. And you know what? You're right. But through Jesus, we are declared righteous because of what he did, not what we did. And for those that are here today who have never felt the courage to stand for their convictions, I pray you'd embolden us to be your ambassadors who truthfully but artfully convey biblical truth to a lost culture. Bless this church. Help us to love better and better each day as through the process of becoming more Christ-like, we also become people who love better and better. We thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for this church. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.